Satan's First Strike, Get the Child, is the title of message number six of Dr. Joel Hunter's series, The Church and the World of the Future, a study of the book of Revelation. From the New American Standard, Dr. Hunter's scripture text is Revelation chapters 12, verses 1 through 5, and then verse 17, and they read as follows. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven, and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth he might devour her child, And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. It's in the frame of mind of being worshipful. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the people fell down and worshipped. Father, what a privilege it is to gather with Your people as the children of God, the people of God, called out of darkness into Your marvelous light. Thank You, Lord, that we can lift up our voices and that You hear our praises and are pleased with them. Lord, we ask that You would continue to use this time in our lives to minister to us, minister life to us through Your Word, so that as we walk through this life, challenged by the world and the flesh and the devil, that we might not walk as those who have no hope, who have no understanding. But teach us, Lord, from Your Word and encourage us through Your Holy Spirit's presence that we might have the victory of Christ in our lives, and that through You, Lord, we will overcome. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, today we are going to begin the study of chapter 12. Chapter 12 is is central to the book of Revelation. As a matter of fact, if you were uh, diagramming this book in a chiastic structure, from the Greek word uh, chi, which is an X, uh, that in a chiastic structure, everything leads to a point and then leads away from the point. All of history is a chiastic structure. Everything leads to the birth of Jesus and then is different from the birth of Jesus. If you were to diagram this book of Revelation in a chiastic structure, uh, it would point to this chapter, this 12th chapter, because it is absolutely uh, germinal in the, in the, uh, um, the turnaround uh, and, and what it says. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to summarize the book of Revelation, you probably could not find better verses than the 10th, 11th, and 12th verses 
of this chapter. I will read those to you after uh, the uh, uh, message today as a benediction. But since we have a little extra time, uh, uh, not with the sermon, but with the, with the brevity in the scripture reading, I'm not trying to cover four chapters today, just a few verses let me ask if you will show the first slide and let me read these verses to you so that you can see them in the first slide uh, even as we read it. Now, this is, remember, this is Albrecht. You can uh, turn the light down. I can see all right. Uh, and focus good. Remember, this is Albrecht Durer who uh, uh, did these etchings, these woodcuts in uh, uh, fifth, the early 1500s or the late 1400s. And this is of uh, the 12th chapter. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed in the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now remember what twelve is for. It is the number for perfect government. On her head was a crown of twelve stars, and she was with child and cried out, being in labor, in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now, I want you to notice the crowns here. I want you to notice the Greek word. By having seven heads, it means he has perfect, not knowledge, but craftiness. Remember, the serpent in the garden was more crafty than any other creature. By the ten uh, horns, that is the complete power that he needs to do what what he needs to do, and by the seven diadems, the crowns on his head, this is different from the, the crown of uh, Stephanas. Stephanas is the victor's crown. Diadem is the crown given to a person who has been appointed to a certain role. That is, a, there's a certain kind of uh, part that they play, and, their, and their, their activity comes from that authority that has been given to them to play that part. In Greek, there's two words for authority, or there's more than two words, but the two words that are usual are exousia, which means you have been granted authority from someone else to perform a certain function. And there is dunamis, which is from which we get the word dynamite. It's, it's actual power, you know. I mean, you got the strength to do it. Diadem, I, I would say these diadems have more to do with exousia. This dragon you've read the book, is not victorious. He does not have the power within himself to do what he's doing. But he's been given a role by God to play. And so that's why you see those uh, seven diadem. And his tail swept away a third of the stars in heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. This, of course, is focused history, reference to Jesus Christ. This woman who has 12 stars on her head is Israel, the expectant Israel, the believing for the Messiah portion of Israel. And it says, And the child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God, so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, show the next slide, will you? This next slide is a, um, this is the Flemish version uh, in, uh, from an unknown artist in the Netherlands about, uh, about the same time frame, actually. The, the, the uh, 
15th or 16th century. Um, and uh, here it shows the woman clothed in the sun, standing on the moon, uh, having the child, handing it to an angel, and the angel transports the child to God. This, of course, is the seven-headed dragon. But what I want you to see is after that, she has, she has uh, um, uh, departed into the wilderness uh, and is protected there. Now, we're going to talk about this next week. We're going to talk about the woman next week. But for right now, <clears throat> I want, to, want you to focus on the 17th uh, verse. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so there is a war on the believer's children. That is predicted in the third chapter of Genesis to be the pattern for all of history. When God says to Eve, and I will create an enmity, I says to the serpent, and I will create an enmity between your seed and the seed of the woman. Enmity, in Hebrew, it literally means blood feud. Blood, the functional term here. That's the, that's the term you, you focus on. I will create a blood feud between your children and her children. In other words, you will always try to get the children. Now, there were a couple of times in history when this was very evident, and that both at the time of a birth of a great leader, of a great transition in history, of pivotal points in history. One that we will see right now, show me the next slide, was at the birth of Jesus. And you read in Matthew chapter 2 that after the birth of Jesus, after the wise men had come, uh, and by the way, the wise men showed up, if you read carefully, up to two years after Jesus was born. Jesus wasn't in the manger anymore. He was in a house by now. And Herod discerned from the wise men when this Christ child had been born so that he could, quote, worship him. And then he went after him. Remember the angel came to Joseph. Now, this is, this is pivotal. The angel came to Joseph and said, Arise and take the child and her mother. In other words, act in the role as protector here. And flee to Egypt, for Herod is about to kill you. And, and this is exactly what the, this scene is about. Uh, this is Joseph. Of course, this was, uh, this was uh, also by an unknown artist. Uh, it's in a gallery in, in London right now. It was painted in the 1100s. And so all of these people have medieval garb. Uh, and so this is, this is the angel with his censer. Remember, the, the censer carries the incense, the prayers of the saints. And so he's, he's kind of floating the prayers of the saints here. And this is Mary and the child, both of them, by the way, giving the angel a blessing. I think that's, that's cool, a two-year-old giving a blessing. <clears throat> and down uh, underneath you see Herod and the slaughter of the innocents. Look, not only do they, are they slaughtered with a sword, but you can also even see the cannibalism, almost uh, referencing First uh, Peter 5.8, where the Satan roars around like a, like a lion seeking someone to devour. You know, like a prowling, prowling lion seeking someone to devour. Okay, uh, give me back the lights and, and let's go from here. That shows you one response in history, that, that there was a man there and, and, and a father who took, res- who took responsibility to protect his wife and his child. There is, though, as you read this 12th chapter of Revelation, a question that comes up after a while. Where's the man? Where are the men in here? It looks like the children and the mother are fighting the battle alone. Where are the men? 
Let me show you another very curious reference in Scripture about the time that Moses was born. You can read the details of the slaughter of the Hebrew children back then in, in Exodus chapter 1, but there is a reference in Acts chapter 17, or chapter 7, I'm sorry, beginning with verse 17, that is very prominent and very curious. Let me read this to you and tell you how I believe this applies to our time. First of all, it says in verse 17, but as the time of promise was approaching. Now remember, these are pivotal points in history. And it seems to be a pivotal point of history where Satan goes off to make war with the rest of her children, that is, the believer's children. And so, it says, as the time of promise was approaching, don't ever get hopeless, don't ever get discouraged, because any time there's a battle, there's always a promise. There's always a hope. There's some reason for the interference. And that's good, as the time of promise was approaching. Which God had assured to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. And there arose another king of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. It was he who took shrewd advantage of our race. Now watch this. And mistreated our fathers. In other words, there was something happening in the men of that culture that was distracting them. Because look at what comes next. Mistreated our fathers so that they would expose. The Hebrew is, I'm sorry, the Greek is literally put out to die. So that they would expose their infants. And the infants would not survive. Now notice the marked difference between this and Joseph shielding his family and going to Egypt. Protecting his family. Notice here that the fathers are somehow absent or somehow distracted so that the children are more exposed. Now what does that have to do with our culture of today? Jesus was very plain about being able to interpret the signs of the times. He says, you know what? You guys can look at the sky and see what kind of day it's going to be. Are you telling me you can't read the signs of the times? Well, what I'd like to do today is just give you a, just a vignette of our culture that is, at, on the one hand, the best of times, and on the other hand, the worst of times, like Charles Dickens' novel. I believe there's great revival happening all over the country. But I believe at the same time that there is absolute warfare against our children, against our belie the believer's children. And I believe that's because there's a great time of promise before us. And I believe that Satan is doing the same old pattern. He is taking out the men. And I believe that God is calling us back into the role of protector. Now, I realize fully that Christians, whenever they begin to look at the situation of the day, are accused of crying wolf. And, 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 I, and I believe part of that fits. I've seen so many exaggerations just to evoke an emotional response. I've seen so many things overstated by the Christian community in order to make things seem more catastrophic than they really were. So I believe that part of that reputation of, of Christians just trying to exaggerate and looking doomsday-ish and all of that kind of stuff is, is partly deserved. And I believe that there is a pattern in history, in every age, where the older generation kind of looks at the younger generation and goes, yuck. 
they're not turning out as good as we were. As a matter of fact, let me read you a couple of quotes, and and uh, some of you may have heard these before, but let me just read them to you. There's little doubt that the present generation of college young men and women is in serious moral difficulty. Compared with generations preceding, they have shunned discipline and a willingness to excel in their studies. Many give little or no thought to the serious issues of life. Common decency and modesty in manners and dress apparently are things of the past. The fact that evil is called good while good is called evil seems to be of little concern to them. Student groups indulge in wild orgies of self-gratification, while coeds dress and walk in a manner deliberately intended to arouse, arouse sexual desire. Both young men and women in their actions and conversations make sexual over, overtures in the most shameless fashion. Let me read you another quote. This is from another person. Our youth today love, love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority, and disrespect for older people. Children today are tyrants. They contradict their parents, chatter before visitors, gobble their food, and tyrannize their teachers. Now, this sounds like a pretty fair description of kids today, doesn't it? The first one was written by Aristophanes, some 500 years before Christ. The second one was written by Socrates, some 400 years before Christ. So we must realize that there has always been an alarm from generation to generation. This is a cyclical thing. It's not a bad thing, it's just cyclical. But I do believe that there are things going on in this culture that have never been seen before in the history of the world. And, and you know, being a history major in college, I have some, some grounds for saying what I'm about to say. Let me say to you that some of the things that are happening in this country right now literally have never happened before in 200 years that, we have, that we've existed if you were to read uh, uh, Jim's, Jim Dobson's uh, Children at Risk, for example, you would see in there myriads of examples of how things are very, very different than they were even 30 years ago. For example, he said, you know, when JFK was assassinated, he said, I can remember sitting in my classroom and the first response of the teacher was to offer prayer. I can remember the same experience. I was in Latin class at the time. I had a Jewish teacher... And she said, you know, we ought to ask God to take care of our country. He said, contrast that with what happened years and years later with the Challenger explosion. What happened? They carted in mental health experts. And they said to the teachers, don't try to take care of the spiritual needs. That will cross the lines of church and state separation. Be very careful. There was a completely different reaction. I know some of the some of the cases legally we face today have literally never been faced before. A, a, a young person who has earned the right to be valedictorian of her class, forbidden to mention her personal faith, and therefore not allowed to speak because she won't back down. It became a court case. Two young men expelled from school for passing notes in the hall about a Bible meeting later on that day became a court case. Teachers admonished not to pray together in the teacher's lounge 
it became a court case. The winter, <laughs> the winter holiday now is just that. It's not Christmas anymore. It's winter holiday. By the way, I heard uh, that Columbus Day now, because Columbus has become such a tyrant and such a, 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 a you know, a capitalist in people's minds that it's now Indigenous Peoples Day. It's not Columbus Day anymore. Well, again, what we have in the last 30 years is very different than anything we've ever faced in our country before. And it is literally taking from our young people the references that we had to the sovereignty and the existence of God, even though still 94% of the people who live in this country believe in God. Paul Vitz did a survey of the reading material in, in uh, many of the schools, and out of 570 curriculums, he could not find one reference in an English reading course, particular reading course, to God. As a matter of fact, what he saw was edited out the word God. In the original story, if they had thank God, they just said, thank heavens. They translated that differently. If, if somebody said, God bless you, they would just read now in the story, bless you. Took out the word of God. Now, please hear me. I think the, the public schools are still stocked with Christians who will be vibrant witnesses to Jesus Christ. Public schools aren't, aren't in the garbage yet. What they turn out to be is very much up to us. But what I'm saying here is that we live in a very different day than we've ever lived in in this country. Now, let me go to the next step. And by the way, this is, you, if you've not discerned this by now, this is just, this is more of a, uh, 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 this is, this is, there's no warm stories here, okay? I'm not going for your heart here, just going for information, because I believe that's what calls, what's called for in the, in the uh, uh, exposition of this particular chapter. I did, I went even further. I said, okay, Christians have a habit of stacking the deck whenever they, whenever they talk. Whenever you're trying to persuade somebody, you want to go out and get just Christian info. I'm not going to go to Dobson. I'm going to go to David Hamburg, who is the president of the Carnegie Foundation. Brilliant man, not a Christian. And I'm going to go to a new book that he just, he just published called Today's Children. This book is so liberal that it was recommended by Donna Shalala. You can't get more liberal than this. And it analyzes the situation of childhood in the nation today as being different than it ever has been in the history of mankind. Not just because of the effects of the Industrial Revolution that has now moved the raising of children effectively outside the home, just as it raised the, the income gathering outside the home, but because what has always been true of families is not true anymore. He, he, he said, especially in the past 30 years, he said 30 years ago, 1960, there was a general consensus about family life. The consensus was this. A family is a mom and a dad living with their children. That was the definition. Simple. Second, the dad was the head of the family and was responsible for providing, for providing the income to the family and for protecting the family and giving his name to the family and keeping the family together. And the mom, three, was to help dad in his work and to nurture the children as they grew up and to set the moral tone for the home. Four, that marriage was an enduring obligation. Now, I didn't say treat. I didn't say party. 
I said obligation. And that both people would bear the stress that came with marriage. And that they would endure the hardships together. And that they would stay faithful to one another. Number five, just 30 some years ago, it was understood that the parents were not only the chief providers of guidance and the custodians of their children's welfare, but they were the sole providers, according to, to everything that was, that was, that was um, in a consensus right, they were the providers and the moral guides of these kids, even after they got in school, and they would make whatever sacrifices necessary for their children. It was 30 years ago. Now, Hamburg says that nowadays, that's simply not true. Now, again, I don't want to go through a bunch of statistics that, that, you, that you already know about the breakup of the family and so on and so forth. Many of us, most of us, have been, have been uh, uh, experienced or, or have someone we love go through a breakup of a family. This is not, I'm not talking to a bunch of people uh, who have not experienced this. As a matter of fact, um, I think it was Barna says in the, in the future of the American family, of a child born today, two out of three children born in this year, by the time that they are um, 18, two out of three of them will live in a single parent household. Two out of three. So therefore, we are in this situation of a very different family setup. But it's because we have a very different mentality. And I want to just talk to the men just for a moment today. It's not all your responsibility, but it is your main responsibility. I'm hearing things today I've just never heard before. I'm hearing stuff like this. You know, before I can make my family happy, I have to be happy. I've never heard that before. I've never read it in any book that I read often. As a matter of fact, in that book, it says just the opposite. It says, you know, have the mind of Christ. Count others as more important than yourself. It says, Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. That's what it says in the book. It says, in essence... It is our job to sacrifice. That's what leadership is. All of the polls say that parents today are just as concerned and just as worried about their kids as parents have ever been. But here's the difference. Two-thirds of the parents surveyed today admit that they are not willing to sacrifice their own happiness for their children's happiness as much as their parents sacrificed for them. That's the difference. You see the mentality here. As a matter of fact, it's such a mentality that Satan can wait around until our children are not only attacked in the morality that is now absent and in the example that is now absent, but if he waits around long enough, they can be attacked by the spending of what we're doing right now. I read a couple of weeks ago... <clears throat> Miriam Marquez had, a, had a, uh, a note in the paper that said a bipartisan committee in our government had gotten together and said this. If we were, we're spending at such a rate in this country to answer our needs, 
If we were to cut out all of the space, if we were to cut out Congress, if we were to cut out the Pentagon, if we were to cut out welfare, if we were to cut out um, the presidency, if we were to cut out uh, um, national defense, if we were to cut out all of the roads and all of the public works, if we were to cut out all of those things by the year 2012, if we had no exp- none of those expenses, no discretionary expenses of the government whatsoever, we still would have barely enough money to pay for the national debt and the entitlement programs left. Just barely enough. Now, let me ask you, how buried are our kids going to be? Do you ever do you ever notice how patient Satan is? You notice how many men Satan takes down in the latter part of their life when he couldn't get to them in the first part of their life? Well, what's <laughs> you're looking very depressed right now. <laughs> and I don't want you to look depressed. I want you to look sober. And I want you to look challenged. Because listen to this. This is not about not winning. We already have what we need to win. This is about being called to responsibility. Men, let me talk to you just for a second. I want to challenge you to challenge that thought process in your head that says, my happiness is more important than the, wife, than the happiness of my wife or my children. It's not. I don't know where you got the idea, but it wasn't from the book. You are challenged to be a leader, and a leader is someone who serves. That's the definition, the biblical definition of a leader is one who serves, one who lays down his life for another person. You don't have to be happy before you can support your kids. You don't have to be full before you can pour your life out for your kids and and want the best for your kids and want the best for your wife. It's something that you can do in Christ. Only with the resources of Christ. So it's no longer you who live, but Christ who lives in you. Only with the resources of Christ. But it can be done. But let me challenge you more broadly, church. More broadly than that. God is searching for someone to stand in the gap, it says in in Ezekiel chapter 22. In Ezekiel chapter 22, it describes a society of, of... making a lot of widows and, and, and a society of greed and a society of, of uh, uh, perversion. And then it says, God is looking all over the land for someone who will stand in the gap. Well, I want to ask, where's the man? Where's the man? Where's the man in the 12th chapter of Revelation? Where's the man today who will do that? And I want to ask this, where's the church? Because you know what? We're so broken that if every man took responsibility right today for his own family, it would only fix part of the problem. We have so many broken families, so many needs, so many single-parent households that can't do it on their own from here. Not only do we need to support men in their responsibility for the family, but we have so many broken families and so much damage done by Satan that there's something bigger than just personal responsibility by men that needs to be done. And you know what it is? The church needs to take responsibility to help those broken families, to support them, to provide male leadership, to provide role models, to provide all of those stable relationships that the kids don't have today. Because it is necessary now that many women work in order just to put food on the table. And while they are working, where are the kids 
having any kind of stable relationships. Most kids don't have access to their grandparents anymore. Most kids have access only to teachers or, or, or neighborhood uh, people that come and go. Where are the believer's children to find stable, long-lasting role models? I'll tell you, we're in the church. That's what we were made for. Now, I'm not going to um, go into the details of the solution today because we're going to be working this about, on this uh, come next year. You see, we're going to be talking about faith all next year, and faith is about building what your eyes have seen that are the end results of faith. And that's why we're looking at Revelation. We're looking to see what God wants us to build for the end times. And then next year, we're going to talk about putting it together. But for right now, man, I want you to be called. I want you to be called to be the leader. Now, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask Eleanor to come out and sing a song that she... She composed for her little girl um, some time ago. Her little girl's name is Marty. But it just fits our situation perfectly. And it gives us the right place to look. Pray with me. God, help us to remember that this is not about us fixing society. This is about us looking to you. In the book, you were the one who caught up the child to yourself. In the book, you were the one who protected the woman. In the book, you were the one who saw that Satan had this ongoing onslaught against our children. But God, as we participate with you in your strength after the model of your son, we pray that you will help us to build something in this world that you see for the end times. We ask you to give us a look at the throne and then let us build after that look. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
every fight But hold on tight Or read what I believe the summary of the book of Revelation as our benediction. I read this because I want you to be sobered and I want you to be challenged, but I don't want you to be depressed. I want you to know that victory is ours. We can do it. We can take it. Listen to this. Now, the salvation and the power And the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down, who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their own lives, even to death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. He's only got a short time. Let's go out and build eternity for the time that remains. Amen.